When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Danny Korchmar talking to you. You're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. History in five songs. With host Martin Popoff. A production of Pantheon Podcasts. Let's rock out with Martin. Martin Popoff here. Welcome back to another episode of History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff. We are brought to you by the good folks at Pantheon Podcast. We're pleased, as always, to be part of this uh, very vital community of uh, music geeks just like me. Um, and uh, this podcast is available on Spotify, iTunes, and over 40 other podcast platforms. All right, we're up to episode 120. This is called Made for Japan, episode 120, Made for Japan. I always want to keep these titles short. I thought Made in Japan was a little bit too uh, obvious. Uh, I was thinking about hard rock in Japan and then metals history with Japan. And then I'm thinking all this stuff I'm talking about in these historical episodes, do they even call it metal anymore? Is it metal anymore? So so it's like, well, I mean, is it heavy metal or is it metal? We've, we've had that discussion before about the difference between heavy metal and metal. Um, Anyways, I thought Made for Japan was a nice, slightly enigmatic and awkward thing to say in the, in simply three words, uh, because everything that we're going to talk about here um, is talking about this uh, uh, Hard Rock's early interface and obsession and uh, and love for all things Japanese. And all these beats are going to look at different ways uh, Hard Rock uh, in, in, you know, again, history in five songs. So this is like a historical look at how Hard Rock um, interfaced with Japan along the way. This is an episode that was suggested by Neil Miller, actually, just like the last time. Um, he's given me lots of kind of like good examples when he's made suggestions and stuff, which is kind of cool. And then I've built on them and, and added. Um, but no, I thought this was a pretty cool one of his. So thanks again, Neil, for, uh, for this, uh, suggestion. Um, Let's take a, let's take a listen to our first track and we shall discuss. This is Deep Purple with Space Truckin'. All 
right, so that's Deep Purple Space Trucking from Made in Japan. I thought Made in Japan is pretty much the place you want to start an episode like this. You know, I was racking my brains and thinking, is there such a, uh, is there a good large hard rock heavy metal precedent uh, to the Made in Japan album, big, huge, famous album, uh, in terms of kicking off this whole thing? And, you know, one one that I thought about is the fact that the... um. The UFO Live album, believe it or not, UFO Live in the Mick Bolton era, uh, that was recorded in Japan. They actually were one of the bands that had, uh, you know, or or for for a band that was such a baby band, to have a trip to Japan is is pretty crazy uh, that early on. So, um, and they had some success over there. So, so this is almost like. Um, you know, we're, we're playing space trucking, but, um, this sort of, because I really don't want to play anything off of that UFO live album. It's not very good. Um, but, uh, the, the whole point is that, um, just that UFO situation tells you something special is, is happening here as well. Um, but anyways, um, so, so this is a super famous early Made in Japan album. It's right there in the title, Made in Japan. This is recorded live in Osaka, August 16th, 1972, double album. You know my thoughts on this album. I've always said that it's uh, it's pretty boring. Um, I don't like these long jammy things. I, w- I want the bands to just get in, play the songs, play the fast, heavy songs, and get out kind of thing. Anyways, um, but this brings uh, th- this whole this whole tradition of these live in Japan albums, uh, you know, and, and just to mention a few, Cheap Trick at Budokan, their biggest album, the band that broke them is just a single live album. It's not recorded that well. Uh, yeah, I don't know why that was such a big hit, but this is a record that, um, you know, it, it was released there first and then it became a hit. And so Cheap Trick always had this, this, uh, association with Japan. It, it basically made their career, uh, from Canada here, T's Tour of Japan. Uh, it's a it's a single album, but it's a good compilation of the heavy songs off their first album, T's, and their second album, On the Loose. And it's got like an extra uh, thing in there, uh, you know, like in, in terms of the gatefold, uh, an extra sort of uh, panel. Uh, really cool live album. Runaways Live in Japan, I believe same year, T's Tour of Japan might be 78. Uh, Runaways Live in Japan, uh, good solid Hard rocking, heavy album from those those gals. Uh, Michael Schenker, One Night in Budokan. You know we've got we've always had this UFO legacy, and they love Michael over there. Um, Van Halen later on, of course, Tokyo Dome live in concert. We've got Judas Priest unleashed in the East. You know that this is uh, has the East right in the title, and and um, you know they use the Japanese characters in the in the logo there uh, Ozzy Osbourne even later had a live at Budokan and of course early on we've also got Scorpions Tokyo tapes so we've got Tokyo mentioned right in the title uh, there as well um, so these records th- these trips are always very memorable for these bands they always talk about you know the cliche is and I've interviewed all these guys and it's it's funny I, I could almost make a compilation of how their answers are all the same but first of all it's uh we got off the plane and it was just like the Beatles, right? Screaming all this. So so they get this big welcome all the time. The labels always treat them well. There's always the famous Mr. Udo and him making sure everything is going right. You know, not 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 to go down an X-rated uh, road here, but, you know, I've, I've heard the stories of uh, a little bit of Geisha Girl action as well. Um, you've also got the idea that these shows are always recorded so well. So, so when they actually uh, get it together to record in Japan, they usually do a good job because obviously, uh, you know, the bit, the big legacy, uh, electronics companies, a lot of them started in Japan. Um, 
you know, and then you also always hear the cliche of uh, of the crowds are so well behaved, they just sit there, they make no noise, and then as soon as the songs finish, they they erupt in applause. So you always hear that story as well, right? So in 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 many ways, um, these these bands uh, when they get over there early, and again, uh, there is something special going on here. They do get over early. Uh, it's it's always one of the fondest memories of of their rock and roll uh, careers. Um, okay, so that that's a that's a a song chosen and a little bit of a uh, discourse there to represent the live beat. Uh, take a listen to this. This is our second track here on History in Five Songs, episode 120, made for Japan. Um, this is UFO with stopped by a bullet. All right, so I wanted to play this to represent the idea that sometimes these bands uh, do some good business in Japan to the point where this is an extreme example where uh, the Japanese situation and having a Japanese record label saying, uh, if you if you reform with Michael Schenker, uh, we will put out an album. So so the Walk on Water album, which is considered a, a it's a very well-regarded UFO album. I think it's maybe a little overrated because we all lost our minds when this thing came out. Um, it was 1995, 1994. Uh, anyways, it comes out in Japan first and then, and then there's eventually a European release and a US release and the album covers are different, all this, and there's slight track differences. But I wanted to pick this to to represent an extreme situation where, like I say, a lot of uh, a lot of these rock stars who maybe don't do so well in North America or Europe have have some pretty decent business that goes on over there, and this is the best kind of business you could want. Uh, it, they literally got the band back together and and put out a great album, uh, this Walk on Water album. And another example of this is uh, is the great Gillen Band. You know, after the Ian Gillen Band, when he had Gillen. His first album was released in Japan only. Uh, it's it's Gillen by Gillen, so it's just called Gillen, but it's actually more so known as the Japanese album. And I have a copy of it. The other cool thing about Japan, uh, of course, is... Um, well, a couple cool things. You you get the obi strips on these things, right? Um, so so the uh, the paper that's wrapped around it, you know, signifying a Japanese release. People all, always often talked about the superiority of the Japanese vinyl. And then I remember from my Gillen album as well, um, very thick cardboard uh, made for the sleeve. I've I've got a um, I've got a Queen Night at the Opera the same way, you know, big thick cardboard. So people, the Japanese records were always very collectible for those reasons, and usually usually got an insert, uh, but most of that was in Japanese characters most of the time. Uh, but it but it was cool getting uh, getting these Japanese uh, albums at the time. Always record collectors, they're they're very highly coveted uh, these albums. So. Um, and yeah, just a few more points. I don't know where these where these fit in with anything, but uh, the other big thing about Japan is Burn Magazine was always an amazing, amazing, big, thick magazine. Unfortunately, it was only in Japanese, so we didn't get English versions of that, but always glossy with lots and lots of photos. Uh, I mentioned Mr. Udo earlier. You know, I wanted to mention as well, there are certain bands... Like, you know, you always hear the cliche about Eric Martin and Mr. Big because I thought of Burn Magazine. They're always on the cover of Burn or in Burn. So there's a lot of bands that have done really well over there. 
Uh, Harem Scarum is another one that comes to mind. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, Japanese bonus tracks. This is another big thing about the interface with Japan. So, so when you get up into the CD era, what happens was uh, the Japanese industry wanted to make sure that that uh, the local market wasn't flooded with imports, and 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 the Japanese fans were buying the import albums of the uh, versions of these albums. So they would often have a Japanese bonus track, Japanese exclusive. You know, this mattered more in the in the strictly physical age. Now nowadays, you just go on YouTube and you can play all this stuff, or or a lot of the versions uh, that you even get on Spotify, you you can get these bonus tracks. But back then. The Japanese CDs were quite coveted because there was a Japanese bonus track. Uh, so this would be like a, a fully finished studio song, you know, known that J Japan was requiring this. Uh, so they would just record a whole extra song uh, or two and uh, and it would show up there. And sometimes they even went to extremes where uh, some of these, sometimes they would put on a message to the Japanese fans or message to Japan and it would be titled like that. And it was simply the band saying, oh, thanks guys in Japan for buying our albums. Hope to see you soon, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was, it was, it was like this 30, 30 second just spoken greeting to, to Japan. Japan, uh, which was kind of cool. Um, let's see what else. Yeah, and you know, I, I think of uh, Carl Carl Bagai, a buddy of mine, uh, writing for BraveWords.com. He uh, and and our magazine, of course, in the past, I, I quickly uh, scanned through an article he wrote with a little history of uh, you know heavy metals in interface with Japan. He also mentioned um, Lana Lane, Firehouse, Valentine, uh, these these bands that have done done well over there. And he in uh, interviewed somebody over there who I guess was a journalist. I didn't catch the name. Sorry, but. Uh, you know, there was a little bit of a talk. Uh, the question that wasn't answered that I've always kind of wondered the answer for, and maybe on our on our Facebook we can talk about this a little more. Is it really that that hard rock and heavy metal uh, did outsized over there? Because I always think we we sit in our bubble and don't realize it's kind of all kinds of music, right? But we know we know there is is uh, this specialness that that we all talk about that's coming out in all these points, right? But there was a point made there that uh, the Japanese like musicians who are virtuosic with a lot of skill technical skill recorded well and they also like a lot of melody so that's why you get a lot of these um uh the, these traditional heavy metal bands and then later power metal bands that have translated well over there and i think the point was kind of elliptically made in in carl's article that you could see at brave words i think it was a possibly a, a loudness article he was writing that it 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 actually took uh took a little longer to get band you know get uh, the Japanese fans into uh, thrash and death metal and even even the likes of Slipknot and Corn so they really did like this traditional stuff that that essentially starts with Deep Purple which is why I started uh, our our first uh, our first selection there uh, all right let's take a little break and we will be right back. All right, back again here. History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff, episode 120, Made for Japan. Uh, let's take a listen to our third track, and we shall discuss. This is Tokyo Blade with Sunrise in Tokyo. <laughs>
All right, so I picked this beat uh, because I I wanted to go back to the new wave of British heavy metal and uh, and this whole obsession with the uh, the land of the rising sun logo. You know the the red dot in the middle with the red lines coming off and raid the Japanese flag kind of idea, right? Uh, so the new wave of British heavy metal always had there. It was it was part of the uniforms. Not everybody's uniform, obviously, but it was a regular thing that you would see this white t-shirt like this possibly with the sleeves cut off and that even translated a little bit into the fashion sense of the early hair metal thing over uh over in los angeles as well but i wanted to pick tokyo blade because i've always wanted to kind of celebrate this band a little more they seem to get forgotten in the new wave of british heavy metal they were one of the really hopeful bands that people thought were quite professional uh alan marsh on vocals there um they had this album the Midnight, in, I, uh, what is it called? Midnight Rendezvous EP. They had some great singles early on before they got signed. Uh, the, the second album is called Night of the Blade, and it's got a samurai cover on it, and it's even got a song called Warrior of the Rising Sun. So I, I picked one of the most extreme bands to to represent this uh, this love of, I guess, the fashion sense and the culture of Japan entering into the new wave of British heavy metal. And I also wanted to mention... You know, there's been bands called Shogun. Grand Prix had an album called Samurai with a samurai on the cover. There was an actual Ebony Records band called Samurai. I think there's a Tokyo. I think there's a Tokyo with an IO. So there's Tokyo spelt YO and IO as band. Uh, there's a Taipan band. And if I can picture it in my mind properly, I think they use the, the Land of the Rising Sun thing. And of course, zoom all the way up to 2021. And we've got Iron Maiden celebrating this uh this culture with senjutsu right um along the way earlier on matt heafy is a famous japanese american guy a trivium a good guy great guitarist and 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 a real like positive worker and he's he's done some really good things on social media but they had uh that shogun album so there's a there's a lot there's a lot of tradition here with uh with just liking uh liking the culture and liking kind of kind of the fashion sense and the samurai thing uh you know i'm i'm sure if we went through other uh, other names of japanese cities and whatnot we'd find uh we'd find other kind of clichés used in this stuff but no it it really did show up in the uh in the new wave of british heavy metal all right Let's take a listen to our fourth track and we shall discuss. This is Alcatraz with Hiroshima Monomore. All right, so this is from uh, Alcatraz's absolute masterpiece of a debut album, No Parole for Rock and Roll, issued October 15th, 1983. I wanted to play this for a couple of reasons. Um, we definitely also see Japanese subject matter coming into the lyrics and titles of, of songs as well. But this is, of course, a, a really smart, well-written, intelligent lyric from Graham Bonnet about, you know, the horrific dropping of the atomic bomb on, on Hiroshima. Obviously, another one was dropped on Nagasaki. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's kind of the story of that. 
um, you know, re- like I say, really good, impassioned, thoughtful, emotional lyric. But I wanted to play this little clip as well, just to show a little bit of, um, you know, the sampling of 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 a Japanese uh, melody or tonality. Uh, you know, famously, this would probably be considered. Uh, cultural appropriation or or slightly racist uh now but remember there was the famous song by the vapors turning japanese right and that had a little bit of the uh you know the japanese sort of melody in it but this hiroshima monomore also has has a little bit of that tonality as well um so i thought that was kind of interesting and you know the other thing about alcatraz um they really didn't get to touring much they had a lot of road bumps in their career but with engve they got to japan and with Steve Vai, they got to Japan. And there are releases where you can hear and see uh, this material as well. So so they have this interface with Japan moving forward. And again, a lot of this interface happens or a lot of this acceptance or embrace by the Japanese fans of of these bands uh, can happen. And this happens, you know, all over the world. It's it's something that always kind of quote unquote works. But, you know, if you're Deep Purple and you do uh, an album called Made in Japan and a song called Woman from Tokyo, and they just love Richie Blackmore over there, right? So again, it's back to that loving craft and virtuosity. Um, but if you do that, it's a reciprocal thing where uh, where you know the Japanese fans will feel recognized and then you will be greatly em- embraced and then it's just a feedback loop going forward uh, through your career. Uh, but you know also on this on this beat, you know I wanted to mention uh, things like you know examples of YNT Midnight in Tokyo. Uh, Crocus had a song called Tokyo Nights. There's the famous uh, Blue Oyster Cult with Godzilla where Eric Bloom actually went and learned a little bit of Japanese so he could speak it from the stage. And there's a, there's a funny story in my Blue Oyster Cult book, Agents of Fortune, where Eric was ticked off that the guy who taught him this Japan was teaching him a a, a very colloquial and clumsy version of of Japanese, and he was, you know, and and so he felt kind of like foolish speaking the way he did or whatever. But I thought that was really cool of Eric, and so they had this big song, and then so Blue Oyster Cult all of a sudden is is like quite you know big and and embraced in in Japan, right? Um, Let's see, Neil Miller, when he was giving me examples here, gave me some other examples. What does he say here? Uh, Hiroshima by Gary Moore, and then he puts in brackets with Charlie Hewn absolutely losing his mind over the injustices. Uh, I, I I don't even remember that song. That's pretty interesting. I don't even remember Charlie Hewn singing for Gary Moore, so that's kind of cool. Um, Hiroshima by Utopia. So, so there's two songs called Hiroshima there. Uh, bon Jovi's Tokyo Road. Um, Queen and Scorpions with their respective Japanese songs. That's right. And, you know, the the whole Marty Friedman thing as well. Um, you know, this whole story about Marty Friedman from Megadeth starting to love pop music and going over there and moving to Japan and becoming a big star and getting all sorts of, you know, jobs, doing all sorts of things on TV and whatnot. Um, so they totally embraced him and he totally embraced Japanese culture and he lives lives lived i'm not sure if he's still there but last time i talked to him he he still lived in downtown tokyo um so yeah that that's pretty interesting but he just loves everything to do with japanese culture and and the pop music uh and that whole thing so um he's he's probably you know he's he's probably the biggest hard rock westerner i would think um who's who's moved to japan and and embraced that culture um all right Let's go on to our last track here on History and Five Songs 120, made for Japan. This is Loudness Like Hell. Take a listen. Now 
All right, so I would be remiss uh, not to mention that there actually was a Japanese hard rock and heavy metal scene. Uh, I wanted to pick the very best. I think Loudness is the very best, and this is sort of the apex of that band's career. Uh, this Max Norman produced uh, at least a couple albums for them, but this is the first one, Thunder in the East, issued June 9th, 1985. Um you know, uh, Max Norman, great producer, does a great job on this. Um, and this this is a band that seemed like, you know, they could possibly make it. It's good, utilitarian, excellent, excellent metal. You know, the, and then uh, the, the next one was Lightning Strikes, 1986. Our, my fond memory, Tim Henderson can uh, uh, account for this. Um, but Loudness played... Uh, the horseshoe and uh which is kind of odd they usually don't have these pure heavy metal things but yeah loudness came all the way over from japan played the horseshoe the actual original lineup tim and i got to hang on the bus and interview them and get all our stuff signed um but yeah it was the absolute complete complete lineup pretty much the most famous japanese musician uh to to make a dent over here in north america is the loudness guitarist akira takasaki um, sadly, we lost uh, the drummer Minataka Higuchi uh, to cancer. Um, but this is a band, yeah, so they came over and played. And Loudness, uh, they have something like 28 studio albums, 28, 29 studio albums. Uh, they have been around for a long, long time. Uh, but I would say the most genius thing they did, um, if you listen to, see, this is this thing with um, this these bands from, from non-traditional heavy metal countries and we usually talk uh with that concept being you know the first removed is germany and then we talk about france and spain and that but japan is well removed right we talk about brazil as well but you really hear this idea of uh, of just having a slightly different mind frame from being from a very different culture on loudness's album disillusion i think it's 1983 but man play this record start to finish you will hear some of the most unique um virtuoso guitar playing from akira uh that uh that you'll you'll ever have heard i mean he's he's considered kind of the the Japanese Engve Malmsteen, right? Um, but yeah, Loudness, I think, were the best and the biggest and most famous of the Japanese bands. Um, but you also had, starting things off, a very a very sort of legendary semi-hard rock band, kind of weird, kind of spacey, bluesy, hawkwindy, I suppose, uh, called Flower Traveling Band with their album Satori. Uh, the other big band that came out, uh, because again, we're talking the history of heavy metal here. They, you know, with this, with this podcast, most of these things were, were housing in, uh, in the early days of this stuff. Uh, but right around Loudness's time, you had Bow Wow as well. Uh, there's a Sabra Bells, there's X Japan, there's EZO. Remember with the, with the makeup, they got a US deal. I think they were somehow tied in with Gene Simmons. 44 Magnum, Anthem, later on Boris and Merzbo, so you had some of that noise rock scene as well. Um, but yeah, so there was a Japanese scene, and like I say, I mean, I, I think I would say basically Bow Wow, Loudness, uh, and EZO, EZO uh, were, were the ones that, um, you know, made a dent in North America because of North American uh, record deals. I, Bow Wow, did, did Bow Wow have a North American record? I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, I, I just, I love looking at all this loudness stuff I've got here, all all with all four signatures on it. I've got Loudness in Tokyo. I've got uh, The Law of Devil's Land fully signed here. Uh, an EP, what is this thing here? We've got... Uh, Got a fight from the original soundtrack Odin. Odin flash out. Not not sure what that is. Wow, that's a 
No, it's not a full-length album. But yeah, again, fond memories meeting those guys. They were all super nice to us, really nice guys. Um, so there you go. Uh, let let, uh, let me know uh, what you think of this, if there's any sort of pieces of the Japanese inter interface with us um, Westerners. Uh, I'm just kind of looking over my notes here. I, I, I think I've kind of hit most of the beats, haven't I? Um, anyways, there you go. Um, I also wanted to mention... Uh, just as it's becoming a little bit of a tradition, a little bit uh, commenting on last episode, 119 Reggae in Hard Rock. Read Little writes, uh, this is on our Facebook page. After listening to your post-punk episode, I've been reading, uh, let's see, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah, he's talking about post-punk. He's reading the book I recommended, Rip It Up and Start Again. At least in the early chapters, the author spends a lot of time discussing influence of reggae on post-punk. Thanks for the book suggestion. Sounds fascinating. Chaotic time in music history. For some more contemporary, Chris Caffrey, guitar player for Sabotage and Trans-Siberian Orchestra, has a cover of Get Up, Stand Up on the album Houses or House of Insanity. Uh, let's see. Steve Bellow writes, Robert Palmer did a lot of reggae early on check out pressure drop for a start i can't think of too many others right now oh wait how about saving my heart by yes uh neil miller writes in uh, also 10 cc dreadlock holiday paul simon mother and child reunion uh mentioned let's see uh augustin garcia de paredes uh nazareth carry out feelings uh beautiful timbales uh Joe Beck uh, mentions turning circles. Uh, that's hilarious because he's right. There's a there's a little reggae turn on there. So you know, and and uh, a a re the rage reprise, uh, so to speak. Uh, let's see. Steve Polari writes there are pl plenty of cringeworthy attempts at some major icons. Sea Moon by Paul McCartney and Wings. Don't think twice. It's all right from Bob Dylan's Live at Budokan. There you go. There's another Japanese album for you. Uh, let's see. Um, Pat Travers, yeah, I, I might not have mentioned New Age Music when I did the episode. Maybe I did. Uh, their version of Born Under a Bad Sign has that flavor. That's kind of a good point I definitely didn't mention. Uh, let's see. Not quite hard rock, but uh, this is Rodrigo. Uh, Osric Tentacles, Psychedelic Reggae Tunes. Pleasant surprise to hear Martin mention them a couple times. Can't remember where. Maybe Sea of Tranquility. Uh, let's see. David Fisher writes, It's not a reggae song by any means, but Bruce Dickinson's Tears of the Dragon has that completely incongruous reggae breakdown just after the guitar solo. Uh, it always bugged me more that it just seemed to come uh, out of nowhere. I've come to think of them as an integral part of the song, but still why? Maybe a nod to Tribe of Gypsies and their world music influences. Jonathan Jordan, sorry, writes, Really good topic. Two things that would have fitted perfectly. The first two amazing albums by Japan Obscure Alternatives. There's another. There's another named uh, band named after Japan. Japan. Um, uh, baton. Uh, let's see. Picking up the Japan baton. Debut album Sheer Greed contains strawberries and passing clouds. Total reggae rock. So there you go. There's a. There's a few uh, other ones. Um, just to uh, tidy up our, our old episode there. Uh, if you like this show, of course, and want to support future episodes, please go to Kofi rhymes with no fee.com slash Martin Popoff. Hit that red support button. Buy me a coffee or a pint on that front this week. Uh, I would like to thank these fine warriors, Joe Becht, Bruce Campbell, Simon Cole, Tim Derling, He's got that unspooled Kickstarter for that uh, the, that book on 8-Tracks. Check it out. David Fisher, John Gaffney, Lair the Alchemist, great guy. Uh, Joe LeBlanc, very generous. Uh, Matt Legro, Keith Martin, very generous as, as well. Thank you, Keith. Uh, Neil Miller and uh, Augustin Garcia de Paredes. There you go. Um, you can go to Martin Popoff for all your book needs. Uh, I should, fingers crossed, have the Nazareth and the Yes 
uh, visual biographies uh, sometime mid uh, this week coming up. Uh, but of course, that doesn't mean anything because once these things go up, you know, time is time is irrelevant, I guess, at that point. Anyways, um, yes, go ponder this whole idea of this uh, interface of hard rock with Japan and uh, join us on the Facebook page and uh, we shall discuss if I've left anything out. Thanks again. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at R&R Archaeology.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 